verses 7 through 12. And out of that reading, we'll pick a text in one verse. Psalm 76, 7 reads, Thou, even thou, art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, Selah, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God, let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Obviously the subject there is God, as we have read it. And I think if you read it again or you were paying attention as I read it, and I ask you to give me a summary of what we just read, the supreme word would be that God is sovereign. Certainly that is set forth in the things that are said in those verses. And God being God and being absolutely and totally sovereign is then a God whom is to be feared. In verse 7, it refers there that thou, even thou, art to be feared. All right? And verse 11 speaks again that God is to be praised, God is to be worshipped, presents, gifts presented unto Him because of who He is, He ought to be feared. So obviously the sovereignty of God is clearly set forth in these passages. Also, because of God's sovereignty, judgment is mentioned. God's anger is mentioned. And God is angry because of one thing, and that is sin, right? There's no other reason for God to be angry other than sin. And God is angry because of sin. And of those who commit sin, the Bible says, He is angry every day. And because of sin and because of God's holy anger, righteous anger, very different from ours, and we'll talk more about that, he is to be feared, but also he will bring judgment. Verse 9, God arose to judgment. He has judged, he does judge, and he will ultimately judge. But that's not all there is to God, is there? Because the other side of that verse in verse 9 refers also to God who will save all the meek of the earth. So God is sovereign. He ought to be feared. He is a God of judgment. He will punish sin. That should cause the creature to fear before him. But at the same time, God is a God of salvation who can and does deliver those who are deserving judgment from being judged because Christ, his son, was judged in their place. The verse I want to point you to for our subject today is verse 10. And that verse, reading it again, says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Now again, the overwhelming subject that we have read here is God's sovereignty. 
And it's with God's sovereignty that we look into this verse, which on the surface can be and appears to be very confusing and even paradoxical in a sense. The wrath of man, praise God. The Bible says a lot about praising God. In fact, that's the theme of the psalmist, isn't it? I mean, nowhere in the Bible do we read of the word praise and praising God more than the lips of David and in the Psalms and others who wrote these Psalms. But to say that the wrath of man will praise God? Quite strange, isn't it? That doesn't sound right because when we think of the wrath of God, we don't think of anything positive at all. It's a very negative thing. It is not something that people do when angry is to praise anything, themselves or anybody else, much less God. And yet the text says the wrath of man will, plead, will praise him and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. So we want to look into that verse. And if that seems mysterious or confusing, we hope to set your mind at ease today. We pray that the Holy Spirit may take our comments and apply those things to your mind so that you can see and know, if you do not already, the great comfort that this verse is and is intended to be to God's people. People who do not know, understand, or believe what the text says will live a life of misery because they do not comprehend the sovereignty of God in the fullness that it can extend even to the wrath of man. None of us totally understand the sovereignty of God but the more we do understand the sovereignty of God, the more comforted and content we become. It's one thing to believe that God is sovereign over some things. Quite another to believe God is sovereign over everything. In fact, I can, never re I can remember back when I was, God was showing me, teaching me, and I was embracing God's sovereignty as I had not before. I just couldn't get enough of it, and I can't to this day. Because the Bible is all about God's sovereignty, whether it's His power in creation, or it's His power in sustaining, or it's His power in bringing things to pass, whatever it is. From the greatest to the least, there is nothing outside of or exclusive of God's sovereignty. And may I remind you, everybody does not believe that. Even Christian people. Because in many circles, many denominations, and many so-called churches, the sovereignty of God is not preached and proclaimed like it is in the Bible. I at one time was a victim of that. But to know that God has unlimited power, ability, wisdom, and that all he does is perfect, that there are no flaws, there are no mistakes, nothing ever gets out of sync, out of time, or out of order, that every moment what God has decreed from eternity past is falling exactly into place, moment by moment by moment. What a comfort.
The opposite side of that is there is no God. And to live a life of misery, thinking that everything is random, luck, chance. If you don't make it happen, it won't happen. Thank God today if God has showed you that what does happen happens because of God. So, a great comfort in the text to know, believe, and understand in any capacity that even the wrath of man praises God. I hope you're comforted if you're not now when we finish. May God apply that. But let's begin with again, just continuing the thought that we are reminded in this passage as so many of God's absolute sovereignty. And I stress the word absolute because that means everything. All things inclusive. Scriptures are too numerous to even mention, but we'll throw a few out there to kindle your memory and stir up your pure minds this morning of the Bible. Very brief, but nevertheless conclusive. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He pleased. Psalms 115 and 3. Our God's not down here. I can't take you to Him. He's not in a plant. He's not in this. He's not in that. Our God resides in the heavens. And the God who resides in the heavens is the eternal and only God. And He always has and always will do exactly what He pleases. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning. Acts 15 and 18, I believe, is that scripture. All-knowing, all-wise, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Revelation 4 and 11, He hath created all things, I'm paraphrasing, by Himself, for Himself, and for His glory. And if they exist, they're here for Him. We are the secondary beneficiaries. But ultimately, if it's here, its design is to bring God's glory, and while it may not be, or he may not be, or she may not be, or they may not be now, they all will one day. God has that ability to create and to make all that has been created glorify him. When I say that, I cannot help but think of the scriptures that speaks about when Jesus came into Jerusalem, when he was going to be crucified. And Man, it must have been quite a scene, would it not? I mean, that triumphal scene and Jesus riding on the foal of the colt of an ass, you know, and people were laying down their garments and cutting down palm trees and crying Hosanna to the king. And it was causing such a ruckus that the religious elite said, you need to calm these people down. I mean, you know, they're getting out of control. And Jesus' words just shot over their head when he said, why, if they weren't crying out, if they weren't doing what they're doing, the rocks would start crying out. I mean, I mean that went over their heads at Mach 6 probably, didn't it? But not to you and me. Because we read in the scriptures about how the trees can clap their hands and the mountains can shout for joy. Uh, the inanimate objects, the non-human life. You think God can really do that? I do. You say a rock don't have a mouth, God can give it one. He spoke through an ass. God can do whatever God wants to do. Not only 
is His sovereignty exhibited in the creation, but Hebrews 1 and 3 reminds us that He didn't just create it and let it go like when I was a little boy, we used to spin tops on a string, wind them up and spin them. And when you spun that thing, when that string come off, you had no control whatsoever of where that thing may go or how long it may spin or what it may bump into. And a lot of people believe that about God. That's their perspective of God. Yes, there's God, but He's a hands-off God. We've referenced that in Sunday school. No, He's not. Hebrews 1 and 3 says not only did He create it, but He upholds it. He divinely created and He divinely administers, oversees, controls every single aspect of it. Whether it is, as far as we know, the infiniteness of the firmament out there, and however many bodies and stars and planets there are, or whether it is microorganisms that we haven't even seen yet. They're there because God made them and God controls them and God sustains them. Everything is under His control. He upholds it. I believe, I could be wrong, I believe it was Einstein who they say at his death regretted that he said he never found the glue that holds it all together. The answer is in God's Word. I am that I am. He's the glue. How sad. But again, and I may have got that wrong, don't hold me to that, but I believe that's correct. But there are so many. How many are perishing at the very moment since you've been listening to me speak that are in the same boat that don't know that there's a God in heaven that not only makes it, but holds it all exactly together. We have difficulty holding our lives together, don't we? God holds the universe together. And Nebuchadnezzar's words in Daniel 4.35 is, he's not just doing it down here, he's doing it up there. He's not just doing it in the visible creation that we can see, but in all those invisible areas. He does His will among the inhabitants of the earth and the armies of heaven, the depths of the seas, the darkness of the galaxies. You name it, God made it, God's in control of it. His will is being performed. Isn't that consoling? What if God was just trying like some people claim? Well, we would be miserable hoping He succeeds, wouldn't we? But how pleasant to lay down at night knowing that He has declared in this this book the things I've just repeated to you. And they are true and they are factual. And He cannot lose control of anything because He's God. How does the wrath of man praise God? That is our question in our text. How does God bring that about? Because as we said in our opening comments, the wrath of man is a very negative subject, is it? It's not something to be complimented. It's not something that usually in any way, shape, or form brings good from the human perspective. The wrath of man cannot be separated from sin because... 
While God has a righteous wrath, man being unrighteous naturally has an unrighteous wrath. We recently talked about this to some degree. So when we're talking about the wrath of man, we're talking about that which is wicked, that which is evil, that which is sinful, that which has bad negative consequences. The Bible warns against it. We covered it in our church covenant just recently about not being given to wrath and so forth. And all of us have a history of seeing where wrath or anger has taken us and the damage it has done, right? So the wrath of man, when we think of that, naturally, by observation, experience, and by the teaching of Scripture, is always quick to profane, to blaspheme God, and to rebel against God, but not to praise God. Yet the text says... The wrath of man shall, not might, but shall praise him. And that's not even implying that it's not now, but one day will. No, it has, it does, and it will continue to do so. And we'll give you examples of that before this is over, Lord willing. But let me remind you, what is wrath? What is anger? Well, it's a very, it's that little bitty small part of us that gets a lot of attention that it shouldn't get. It's a human emotion. We've talked about this before also. And to live your life on your emotions is to live a life of misery. That's worse than being in a hurricane on the sea because our emotions can and will take us in those kind of places, right? Emotions are those excited feelings that we get. And just as quick as we can get excited, we can get unexcited by something else that happens, right? I mean, emotions are, are there, they're necessary, but they're a dangerous thing, a very dangerous thing. They can take us to ecstasy and deflate us as quickly as a pin in a balloon. They're unreliable, undependable. It's what causes us to be fickle like the children of Israel were when they weren't getting their three squares a day and everything happening like they wanted. But again, recognize it for what it is. It is not a bad thing except when it is in a sinful nature. And in reality, when we think about emotions and that, they're not all bad. We have good emotions, bad emotions. But the wrath of man is an emotion that mainly, again, is nothing more than an expression of what's already there. The heart. What, what did Christ say in uh, Matthew chapter 15, I believe it is, about the heart and the things that proceed? He doesn't mention anger here, but you can see... Anger would be in close association and proper to include. How the heart proceed evil thoughts. You know, there's a lot of evil thoughts that crop up out of what? The seedbed of anger, right? Think about how many, do evil thoughts, you know, just think about the last evil thought you had. It may have sprouted right out of the 
anger, right? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witnesses, blasphemies, and so forth and so on. So I would just remind you, when we talk about the wrath of man, we're talking about something that, again, is, is sprouting or manifesting itself outwardly, but it has been within the whole time. James, two scriptures I want to address on identifying the wrath of man. James says in James chapter 1 and verse 20, a very simple statement but profound on the wrath of man. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Okay, now that's plain black and white, light and day, isn't it? That negative aspect of the righteousness, rather of the wrath of man does not accomplish nor work toward nor achieve the righteousness of God, that which is right or right doing in God's eyes, standard, or estimation. So, very negative, sinful, evil, wicked in that regard. Romans chapter 8 makes a statement in conjunction with that that I think will help us here. And that verse says in Romans 8, verse 6 and 7, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Quite a contrast. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now, enmity there means a hatred, a rebellion, and an opposition to God. And this is not talking about some people, this is talking about all people because none of us were born with anything except a carnal mind and a carnal nature, a fallen nature. So we were naturally, let me put it to you this way, if you've read your Bible you know what I'm about to say is true. We were born natural enemies of God. You didn't become one, it was your nature that you were born with. So, in that respect with these scriptures, man naturally is in rebellion, at war against, resistant to, and wrath even extends to profaning and blaspheming the Creator. This is exhibited very clearly in those scriptures in Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Very familiar, I'm sure. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together, notice, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. There's the wrath of man. There's the nature of man. There's the carnal mind of man. Rebellious, resistant, wants to live without God, without the Bible, without restraints. There's the wrath of man expressing itself in that regard. So, I trust you see that the wrath of man of being a very negative thing, rebellious to God, it profanes God, degrades God, denies God, denies God's word, great opposition to God. Again, how can it praise God? I would remind you of this. We won't go there and read it, but in Genesis 4 and 5, when Cain's offering was not accepted, the Bible says, and Cain was wroth, and his countenance fell. And God said unto him, a personal conversation. 
Why are you wroth? Why are you angry? And God advised him. But he didn't listen to God. And he went on in his anger and committed the first murder. Didn't he? How can the wrath of man praise God? But it began there and it won't end until Christ wraps it all up. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, and I'm referring here toward wrapping it all up, God, Christ, the end of times and so forth. It's quite amazing that throughout the whole existence of humanity that it's going to end exactly like it began there in Genesis 4 with Cain. Chapter 11 and verse 18 says, and this is after you might notice verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, seven being the number of completion. So here in this particular passage is talking about the end, the culmination, the wrapping it all up. The elders and those in verse 16 are worshiping, saying we give thee thanks God which art, which was, which art to come. Thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And look at the unbelieving. Verse 18, the nations were angry. Why? Thy wrath is come. The time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you would reward the servants, the prophets, the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and would destroy them that destroy the earth. Anger. To the very last, to the, as we would say it, the bitter end, men will be angry. In fact, there's another passage we could go to. I can't tell you exactly where it's at in Revelation. But it says when this wrath is un, in, unleashed upon man, they're going to curse God. They're not going to repent. They're going to curse Him for unleashing that wrath. That is their due reward. Wrath of man. How in the world can it praise God? Well, let me give you a quick example and then we'll go forward with this. You remember the children of Israel in Egypt, right? Moses and Aaron were sent to Pharaoh. Deliver the message, let my people go, etc., etc. Pharaoh responds, who is God that I'm supposed to listen to him? You know, uh, again, he asserted himself as God. He denied God. He belittled God. He belittled them as the representatives of God and uh, so forth and so on. And everything we've read so far about the wrath of God, Pharaoh pretty much manifested it, didn't he? Even to the end of the plagues as they unfolded, telling him, get out of here, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. So Pharaoh exhibited wrath toward God when he exhibited wrath toward the people of God, wrath toward the representatives of God. He denied that God, was rebellious to that God, etc., 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 right? But what did God say about Pharaoh? Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16 says, let me get there. <clears throat> One more page. Exodus 9, 16. And indeed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. 
How did he do that? What was Pharaoh's end? In fact, I want to be literal here. Where's the last time you see Pharaoh? And the answer is a floating corpse in the Red Sea. Isn't it? He was in opposition to God. He opposed God. He blasphemed God, insulted God, profaned God. And God destroyed him and got his glory. Got his praise, didn't he? Exactly what our text said, that in judgment, God can cause the wrath of man to praise him. And indeed he does. I didn't go into a lot of examples of the wrath of man in the Bible, but let me just mention some names and you'll get the gist of it. Pharaoh was one. Moses' wrath got him in trouble, didn't it? Kept him out of the promised land. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, big, bad, proud Nebuchadnezzar, again, he got in trouble because of his opposition to and his wrath and blasphemy to God, right? We talked about Saul in Sunday school this morning. Was there anybody in the New Testament whose wrath, the wrath of man was more manifested against God than perhaps Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church of Jesus Christ whom he shed his blood for, hailing men and women even to prison and by his own voice caused them to be put to death. You see, so it don't matter where you look and what generation or where, the wrath of man has been manifesting itself and does manifest itself even to the present time in a horrendous, abominable way, either in denying the existence of God or in denying things about God. And of course, you can see this very clearly in the Jews themselves in Jesus Christ, denying Him and that He was God in spite of all them. So the wrath of man is a very bad thing and a very negative thing, but God is able to take it and make it glorify Him as we just said with Pharaoh. And following those examples, Nebuchadnezzar fell into the same thing, didn't he? He threw the three Hebrew children into the fiery furnace, and what did God do? God manifest His presence in the midst of it. It's kind of like what we call turning the tables. When you oppose God, just beware. God will turn the tables on you one way or another, and eventually God's going to have the last say and the last word. Nobody wins when they come against God. Many have come against Him in their wrath, in their anger, and in every way, shape, and form they can. And guess what? Most of them are pushing up something growing on their graves today, aren't they? Saul was converted. A vessel of great wrath turned into a vessel that would carry the message of salvation to the Gentiles. The wrath of man, it's not much in the sight of God. It's just a tool he can use, a destructive force in our hands, but a tool that God uses to his glory. And when we come again, we mention the death of Christ. What a scene, what a scene. Has there ever been any place where the wrath of man has manifested itself in the most abominable and grotesque hatred than at the crucifixion of Christ.
You can watch mobs and protests and people angry and out of control on TV or in person, but I don't think anybody has ever seen anything like what we read about in Scriptures. When that mob was assembled and Christ stood there with, before Pilate, and they were out of control and screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Old man is capable of all kinds of rage toward his fellow man and wherever, but I don't know that man's rage has ever been heightened to the point of climax like it was there among those Jews in their very own words. Even to the degree that in their wrath they would say, let his blood be on us and our children. You asked for it, you got it. Not knowing that their murderous attitude stemming from that wrath and hatred and all that lay in their heart toward the just, innocent, impeccable, sinless Son of God was something that would honor God and bring glory to Him. This is what our text is talking about. How God is able to turn that around. And we're going to read that verse before we get done, Lord willing. But I want to throw something else in here that the scholars tell us, and many who comment on the Bible say that this particular psalm probably was in, re in reference to when Hezekiah was king of Judah and the Assyrian army came to take Jerusalem under the head of a man called Sennacherib. And this is recorded in 2 Kings 19, Isaiah 36, 37 chapters, and 2 Chronicles 32, 10 through 16. And I'm just going to rehearse this because we're about out of time, get close here. He came with his big army and he'd been overrunning and overpowering everything and he come down there and he blasphemed Hezekiah and he blasphemed God's people and he blasphemed God saying don't let this king deceive you he doesn't have a God that can stop me look at all these people we've conquered already they had their little gods and look what I did to them and I'm going to do the same with you so you better not let him deceive you you better bow down right now or else I'll just wipe you off the planet. I mean blasphemish you can go back and read that Particularly, for I'd advise you Second Chronicles thirty-two six through ten, or ten through sixteen, rather. I mean, very arrogant, proud, and blasphemous. I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like sometimes when, uh, like Saddam Hussein said, all he was going to do, you know. And recently, the North Korean guy's going to annihilate the United States. You know, I mean, I mean, it, it's that kind of talk. Little people talking big. Well, he had a big army. And he was undefeated to that point. And he was something to be feared. But you might remember, in spite of all of his wrath and all of that, Hezekiah and the people prayed unto the Lord. Isaiah revealed the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 37, verses 21 through 29. In fact, I am going to turn and read one verse of that. I want you to get the gist and the impact of that of what Isaiah said is going to happen, and guess what? It happened. And this is exactly what our text is talking about. In Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 29, I'm just summing up again the reading from verse 21 down. 
but it reflects exactly what we're talking about, the wrath of man. Because thy rage against me and thy torment is come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. You know the climatic end of that, don't you? God sent an angel. God said, you're not coming in Jerusalem. One night, 185,000 soldiers lay dead when the sun rose the next morning because an angel of the Lord slew them in their sleep or whatever. Sennacherib had to quit talking and tuck his tail and go home. The wrath of man, praising God. I don't know if that's the specific cause or incident that this psalm is referring to, but I do know this, it is only one of many that it applies to. Because God has done that more times than we even have recorded in the Bible. Where people talk big and they're going to do big and God just turns it around and says, watch what I can do. And who gets the glory then? Where's the wrath of man then? And this is exactly what our text is telling us. God can take that which is bad, that which is evil, that which is destructive, and turn it right around to His glory and for good. And this is not something that should be hard for us to embrace as Christians. Let's think about it in a human sense. When man fell, animals went wild, didn't they? Look how, look how man through the ages has been able to domesticate wild animals and use them for his good. Put a ton, two tons of oxen in a yoke and have them pull a wagon. Break a wild horse and put a bridle and a saddle on it and use it for transportation and work, mules and all that, right? Something that is evil, destructive, and to be feared, and yet man has been able to turn that around for good. How many of us would get in a little John boat and get out on the ocean and think we could go to the other side? What would we be? We would be at the mercy of those winds and storms that come across, right? Yet man can build a bigger boat and put a sail on it and use those destructive winds to take him where he wants to go. You see what I'm saying? Likewise, fire. Fire is a destructive force. Yet we can warm our homes and cook our food on it, or we can heat metal in it and forge things that otherwise could not be achieved without the heat of that fire. You see what I'm saying? So man is able by God's providence to take things that are bad, quote-unquote, destructive, Cause death, cause misery, cause serving, and at least use those things to some degree for his own benefit. So how much more God, who made it all and is in control of it all and has so much more ability and wisdom than we ever thought about having? That's exactly what God is doing. The bottom line is then, so the text is telling us that God allows the wrath of man but God controls it and God limits it for His own purposes. 
Yes, God is in control of sin. God is in control of the devil. God is in control of evil. There's nothing God is not in control in. And as children of God, we look about and we see the evil in the world as every generation has and we could shrink back in fear and want to lock our doors and stay inside and never go out again. But we don't have to because God overrules it all. And nothing can happen unless God permits it, has decreed it, or allows it to we His people. Well, what if it's bad? And what? If, well, what if it is? He has said, if He allows it, it's going to be for our good. Well, what if they kill it? Well, what if they do? They've killed God's people before. If He gave them grace, don't you think He'll give you grace? Well, what if sickness... Well, do you not think people have died of disease before? Do we deserve or need anything different from what God's people have needed any other time? If God has controlled it then, can He not control it now for His purposes and for still for our good? That's what the text says. So we as the people of God can read this, believe this, understand it, look at the examples in Scripture, and apply them in our own lives. And know God's in control of the evil. Evil will only go as far as God allows it, whether it's in Aztec or whether it's in the United States or whether it's universal. We know one day there's going to be an Antichrist. God's going to allow it. It's going to be universal evil, global evil. It's coming. We don't have to shirk from it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let the pieces fall in place. This is what it's saying. I must comment quickly in that it says, and the rest he restrains. The word restrain here literally means to gird. And to gird is just like men, or some of you women may be wearing belts today, but when you put on a belt, you gird it, don't you? You tighten it up. And we tighten it up on the clothing to hold in place, right? That's exactly what this word means. He girds it. Oh, it's there. It's always been there. And it's in abundance. But he's the one that literally tourniquets it and holds it in place. God's been doing this throughout all human history. If he hadn't done it in the first world war we'd be living in different circumstances today. If he hadn't girded it on Japan and Hitler eventually, we'd be living under a different flag maybe. You see what I'm saying? I mean, was that evil? Atrocious evil. Horrible evil. And people are responsible for that evil. But God let it go as far as it served God's purpose and God took it up and stopped it right there. And, and I'm just giving you the big example. I mean, God has been doing this on so many levels and He's doing it right now in everyday life. There may be somebody this moment that's planning on breaking in your house while you're at church. God can gird that. God can protect your stuff. There may be somebody waiting to harm you when you go out of this deal. God can Stop that if he wants. And he does. he's doing this in every area all the time. So much that we can't comprehend it. But that's what the text is talking about. So give the text credit where credit is due here. And I will close with this thought. And it's a quote from somebody who I highly admire in the past. Of course, I never met the man. He was dead before I ever was on the scene, I believe. His name was a C.D. Cole. C.D. Cole. Great writer, great preacher, Baptist. 
And speaking on exactly what we're speaking about, about how the wrath of man or evil or sin can praise God. And in particular, he was speaking about, and I'll read one scripture of this. I'll try to squeeze this in and let you go. Peter said on the day of Pentecost this, chapter 2, verse 22, speaking to those people, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Says, and remember, that's the ones who stood, and some of them probably who he's addressing, stood and said, crucify him, crucify him, we will not have this man to reign over us. Okay, this was at Jerusalem. So no doubt, there were in that crowd some who were literally guilty of that. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God raised up, having loosened the pain of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. We could talk about these three verses forever and ever and ever. And complement them with the fourth chapter, verse 24 through 28, which says about the same thing. But the bottom line I've got to quickly point out to you here is, in verse 23, you see the sovereignty of God that God had purposed and determined that Christ would die a sacrifice for sin, right? Determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That very fact did not lent these murderers off the hook. Because Peter indicts them by saying, Ye have taken with wicked hands and crucified and slain literally indicting them on the charge of murder of the most innocent human being that there ever was. In fact, the only innocent human being. God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge, yet your wicked hands. And this I'll just give to you at the last is a great dilemma that people have struggled with through the ages and will never understand in this life, but we believe them both equally, and that is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How do you reconcile those? I've read some great, great scholars and they say, you just, we just can't reconcile it. We just can't reconcile it. We just can't reconcile it. I believe C.D. Cole reconciled it the best I have ever heard in short words. And in applying it to these verses and to our text, he said this, God is not the causative force, but the directing force in the sins of men. God did not have to cause these men to kill his son. All he had to do was just remove the restraints And if he hadn't removed those restraints earlier, they'd have done it quicker. I don't have time to give you the scriptures in John chapter 7. But you know if you're familiar with the Gospels, numerous times we read, and they sought to take him in what? But they could not. Why? Because his time was not yet come. God restrained the evil. He didn't put it there. He's not the author of it. He's not the cause of it. But he is the controller of it. 
And when things suit His purpose, He allows it, restrains it, checks it, holds it, just like you and I would pour water out of a glass, a little, a lot, stop, later. God is the directive force, not the causative force. So as we leave here today, as a psalmist, we don't have to fear what's coming. We know what's coming. We don't have to fear men. We fear God who's in control of evil men and wickedness. And we know that whatever comes down the pike, God has ordained. But He will hold those evil people accountable. And however it affects us, no matter how evil and abominable this stuff is that we're having to see and live in and go through today, God is still able to work it to good of His people. And He is in control of it. I wish today that we could just take this truth and just stick it into the hearts and minds of the unbelieving. But the only way you'll embrace that is by becoming a believer in the God we believe in. And by believing in Christ and God's sovereignty, we can take this truth and savor it, be comforted by it time and time and time again when evil rears its ugly head either out there or or in our lives, in our little circle. So may God be glorified today if you know this truth, that the wrath of man, our God, does, is doing, and will turn the tables to the good of His people and to His glory. Praise to His name for that.